episode 46 where we always discuss the latest Nebraska issues. I'm Stephanie and here with me today are April and Melody. How's it going ladies? It's springtime. That's how it's going. It's not springtime. I mean, it All the spring. snow in my yard is gone except along the edge. Hey. Mm-hmm. Climatologists call March 1st spring. So there. Huh. Okay well <laughs> I feel like there's going to be a little more winter coming back to haunt us after this one. I don't know. There, there is oh! snow sometimes in spring. <laughs> I mean, I, I, do, I want I to be clear. If if more winter comes, I'm going to personally blame you, Stephanie. Well, the farmer's almanac is not a groundhog. <laughs> the farmer's almanac said that this was going to be a really rough winter. It has so, been. It has been, and I just feel like it's Nebraska, and I wouldn't hold your breath, Melody. No, but it usually melts after. I am not going to talk about all the bad juju going on in my life lately, but I am ready for February to be freaking over. Start fresh. March 1st, going to be spring in my book. (laughs) And a start of... If we have anything... Any listeners that are like healers, witches, <laughs> witches. prayerful people. Oh my god. Like send it to Stephanie. She I mean oh, April. 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 Oh, April. Don't April. send oh me god. anything. You're gonna, you're gonna <laughs> screw up my good wishes? Come on. Send April some peace. <laughs> send her some prosperity. Send her some health. Send nice. her everything. One of our awesome seeing red friends sent me a singing bowl. <laughs> she said it came preloaded with chill vibes. And chill oh, you need that. It's fantastic. Although I did have to hide it from the children because they were so upset that they wouldn't stop and it was driving my husband crazy. Okay, Fair so enough. I got to tell you, ladies, I'm pretty excited for our guest today. So I want maybe to. Tell me your your high for the weekend. We won't tell our lows because nobody needs to hear about what happened in April's basement. But um, how about just the <laughs> yeah, high? I make it sound like a murder scene. <laughs> I wish it was weird sex, but it wasn't. It wasn't. <laughs> it was. It was our it sewer. Um, so, <laughs> oh god, so inappropriate. We can't take her anywhere. <laughs> I'm punchy. I'm ready for spring. I'm punchy. Hey. Okay, Melody, what was your high for the weekend? I took the my naughty dog for a walk for over an hour. Oh. I just walked. I don't mm-hmm. think I've been on a walk that lasted longer than five minutes in months. Mm-hmm. And that was for my fear, high. For, for hour of active leg movement. Good. <laughs> April? What was your high for the weekend? I have awesome friends. Really awesome friends. I'm one of them. 
am, am, am I one You're both one of yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just being modest over here. <laughs> I, I had to shower at Stephanie's house today, my entire family. <laughs> well, that was one of my best part. I got to read a book. That was April Sun. So, Stephanie, what was your yeah. high this week? Well, I got to tell you. Uh, I'm just going to tell a little funny story. So I went to Target for the first time in like a year. I haven't been inside a Target, but my kid got some birthday money she really had to spend. And so I was like, fine, I feel pretty good. We waited till the parking lot seemed less full, you know, with our double masks and we wanted to Target. So she could buy some things for these babies she got. They're like for real babies. I don't know. It's kind of creepy, but she loves it. And I support whatever makes her happy. And so she wanted to buy them like some outfits because they were like newborn clothes and she bought them like some baby food and some little plates and cups. And then as we were leaving, she's like, I just have to look at the baby section one more time. So we went over and uh, she was trying to convince me that she needed to buy baby Tylenol for Braxy and Lily, which are these little dolls, right? Anyway, and I'm like, no, no, honey, you don't need that. We can use your Tylenol for the babies for Brixie and Lily and you guys this woman looks at me and she's like ma'am you can't give children's Tylenol to babies and I'm like hey lady Karen Karen they're dolls (laughs) anyway I mean on the bright side if you really didn't know I would Mm -hmm. hope she would tell you because like you know sometimes when you're moms and you're frazzled and you have newborns and like you don't know what the hell's happening you know you guys when my last kid was born I forgot to claim him on my taxes (gasps) (gasps) well he was born like nine days before the end of the year and so then like I had this newborn and I just filed the paperwork and later in the year they were like did you have a baby you're claiming some child care. And I was like, what? I didn't put him on there? Oh my God. We had to refile. Well, at least you can refile. Sounds like a fantastically wonderful mistake. Where you See, that's what I'm money. talking about. Like mm. new moms, they're oh. a mess. They're uh, a I, mess. Just, I just think you should leave people alone when they're arguing with their eight-year-old. Yeah. I just think that, that should be like a general thing. That's fair. You know? That's also fair. So that's what I think. Anyway. So, all right, well, let's bring on our guest. Our guest today is Peyton Zyla. Peyton Zyla, an organizer with pro-Black, independent journalist, and political organizer. Most recently, he was named as one of the people surveilled by the Omaha Police Department in response to the Black Lives Matter protest in the summer of 2020. Peyton, welcome. So nice to have you. Hey, it's nice to be on. Thank you, guys. How's your Sunday? My Sunday is going really good, actually. Pretty, pretty chill for a, for a, for the an ending of a of a pretty busy week for myself. <laughs> Before we go into like, kind of what you've been doing in the last twelve months, can we just talk about this one exact moment? Spring is about to happen. Like we're actively moving into spring. Right. What do you like to do that is unique to the springtime? <laughs> I definitely just try to get out as much as possible because um, after being like cooped up during the winter times, I, I just I just need that outdoorness. Um, whether it be um, going for going for a walk, um, just in general, being outside more. Whether it be like intentionally like door dashing more, just so I can be outside and enjoy uh, the nice weather. I like to um, get out and just feel the new atmosphere that that's that's been given to us. Um, I, every, every time every time the spring comes around. I always there's always just that feeling in the air and it's like it's like seasonal 
I don't know if it's like pollen or I don't know if it's just a change in the overall atmosphere, but like, I, I just, I just feel it coming. So like before yeah. we started getting these forties and like fifties <laughs> last week, I started feeling it like coming when we had like the twenties and thirties right after the sub, the sub zero, I was like, we're going to, it's going to get warm. Like we're going to have a spring's coming a little early. I, I feel it. <laughs> so like one thing that's unique to me coming every, every like seasonal change, mainly spring is like, I always just, I feel it. So like I, I prep for it. My, my energy like it boosts by like 10,000%. I get all these ideas that I've been like, like formulating on during the winter time start to like come into like fruition as I'm like, all right, I'm going to get shit done now. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Spring is, spring is a cool season. So, okay. Tell us who are you? Are you from Omaha? Did you grow up here? If you did, you know, the standard question, what high school did you go to? Um, <laughs> You know, like, tell, give us a little bit of your life story. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I'm born and raised here in, in, in Omaha, uh, raised natively in North Omaha, basically my entire life besides one year. And that was the one year between birth and, you know, one years old. <laughs> um, <laughs> lived in, my mom lived in, a, I believe it was like near the edge of like South Omaha or Ralston in that area um, before she moved to North Omaha when I was one years old. And so that's where I've been you know I, I say born and raised because that's all I've ever known <laughs> is North Omaha yeah. so um lived, lived uh, there all my life um until after um high school um which high school I went to was central <laughs> go Eagles I, I have pride in going to the downtown high school um but they definitely instill that pride in their students for sure <laughs> oh yeah that's something it's not something you you leave central without having um you definitely leave with, with a little bit of pride and yeah so but going back a little bit School-wise, uh, so I went to Fontenelle Elementary in North Omaha off of uh, 52nd, um, and then I went to middle school down at RM Mars Magnet all the way in South Omaha, uh, down oh, yeah. farther, I can't, remember, I can't remember the cross street, but it's down there on Q, and then uh, Central High School, uh, or sorry, middle, middle of Omaha Central High School. So I've kind of been all over the place when it comes to um, my education and exposure to um, different schools and the demographics of those schools too as well. Um, and so I kind of... <sighs> like to attribute that to my really open-mindedness. <laughs> Omaha as really does a lot of busing. I used to work at the Girl Scouts and in some of the schools, especially the magnet schools, it was really hard to do after-school programming because a lot of the kids leave and go to very far away yeah. neighborhoods from the school. So it's hard to um, build some of that stuff. But I think they do it because it's such a segregated school or such a segregated city. Exactly. What, that. Yeah. What was it like to like have to be on the bus for so long? Or did your parents drive you? Or like how did well, that all busing. work? It was definitely busing. Um, once because Fontenot was like like just like right down the street from from my uh, from my home. So elementary school was just walking. But when it came to when it came to middle school, um, my bus had to get me pretty early in the morning, and then like you know like I like six fifteen ish. And then um, leaving, I did sports in middle school. So I usually would not get home until like probably like 7.30 or 8, depending on when, when practice would end for the sport. And then when the uh, late bus, as, the, as they called it for those, for those um, late after school activities, um, whenever that would get me home, um, depending on who else took the late bus from different far parts of uh, the city. Usually I'd, I'd be on the same bus as somebody who would get off uh, somewhere near close to um, uh, West Side, I believe. Uh, west side yeah west side like in that area um mm -hmm. so it was like yeah there wasn't like a lot of late there wasn't like a late bus strictly for like north omaha it was like um late bus for just like people far <laughs> what 
so wait, did you say you left for school at six in the morning? Yes, yes. In order to get to, to school, like, yeah, I had to be like up and like out the door by like, you know, six, six, ten in order to catch my bus um, really early in the morning. Because, you know, school school time by like 7.30 or something like that, 7.40. And so, so like in your formative years in middle school, like we're talking puberty, social, mm-hmm. awkwardness, all the things, you spent 12 hours at least just in schools because yeah. Omaha <laughs> decided that is how we are going to resolve the segregation problem of the city is to put that on your shoulders as a little boy. Yeah. And then at seven o'clock you come home and then did, you had homework. Oh yeah, of course. And I you had and, to eat dinner. Like, I was terrible at homework. Just, just to put that right out, right off the bat. <laughs> like, especially in the yeah. middle school. Like, when, 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 I, when I had the heaviest, when I had like the biggest on my plate was during middle school. Cause I, did sports mainly through middle school and come high school like there was just so much I couldn't balance sports into all of it um but yeah so like that that during that that period having that during that period of my time uh, you know puberty and just like growing and whatnot really um I can attribute back to now uh, had, had had an effect on my development um especially mentally like um the stress and anxiety that comes with like having such a packed schedule like that and then being and then being kind of like told you have to do all you have to do more work when you get to the place where you feel like you should be resting um it's just like yeah wreak havoc on my mind (laughs) so i'm just i'm trying to like get the timeline so you would you do your homework you'd eat dinner i know you needed a shower because you're a middle school boy so i know you were real stinky (laughs) (laughs) and you did sports like ew i'm sure you were like so i'm sure you came home and you're like you know guard you're like parents or like get in the shower you're disgusting Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um so i'm sure that was happening and so like when do you even get to spend time with your family if you have like siblings if you have friends in the neighborhood Mm -hmm. if you don't even get home till seven and you have to eat dinner shower and do your homework it it wasn't a lot of time i didn't have like during especially during the week didn't have a lot of time to really like socialize or honestly just like just chill <laughs> do any of that um yeah. and, and, and if so it, it would have to be like late like later in the night like spending time with like you know my mom watching my watching our shows and whatnot it had to be like later by like nine or ten and then after and then after we watch our show i have to go to bed because i have to go out i have to get up early in the morning so like weekends would like be the only time that i would have to like socialize with with friends and whatnot but then then there's the other things that come into my life, like um, um, having to see my dad on the weekends. So like, you know, I'm, I'm switch, switch between different different environments and, and whatnot um, during the weekend. So it's just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's- I that's just, I'm just like thinking through that. That's just so wild that we ask children to do that. Yeah, um, I, I definitely to solve- have to for long days at school. <laughs> and it's to solve, it's to solve the redlining problem that was created by government. Mm-hmm. And they're like, you know how we should fix this? Let's make the children fix it. Let's take them from their neighborhoods that we've redlined them into and put them into other neighborhoods. And do any um, children from other parts of town get bussed into North Omaha? Not as much that I know of, no. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, know, I know there are folks that maybe, like, like say, like, go to, like, North, like, North and Benson-wise, probably get bussed in from maybe Midtown or or somewhat close to Northwest Omaha, but nothing any farther than that. Um, I don't know any, mm-hmm. I don't know many uh, South Omaha um, students that get bused to North Omaha, um, maybe, maybe vice versa, but not the other way around. So. Yeah, I just think yeah. that's wild. 
Um, I don't think I put that timeline together before, but that blows me away. So, okay. So then you went to high school and then what happened after high school? I, well, for, for, for the longest, so like for a long time, I wanted to go to college because ever since I was 10, and, and, and this kind of builds up to, to where, we, where we're going to get to later, <laughs> since I was 10, I've been like really like interested or invested in watching and following politics, um, especially like I, I was just big on like always keeping up on the news, MSNBC, CNN, always just um, keep keeping up with the information. Um, and a, a big uh, factor in that was the election of, of Barack Obama. Um, that, that, you know, somebody looking like me, you know, being president of the United States, and um, it just it just really like uh, honed into my um, interests. So I, I fo- I've followed that for up to now politics, um, and so I really had the aspiration or the dream to 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 be in to be in political office. But of course, being really young and seeing the president as like my my prime my prime idol, I wanted to be president of the United States. So I was like, all right, of course. I- have to do this, this, and that in order to in order to get here, here, and there, and so like of course I wanted to go to college and um, you know study political science. Um, I had kind of you know the bigger named colleges in mind, like like Stanford for one of them. But then like you know as I as I get into like um, middle school and then like like late middle school and early high school, just kind of like starts to like fade away because um, well for one the uh, like I mentioned earlier the lack of lacking homework um, kind of didn't do well when it comes to grades <laughs> and just school in general. I wasn't really a big fan of it. Um, I appreciated some aspects of it, but I just wasn't, I was good at it, but only in certain areas. <laughs> and so the idea of going to college really kind of dissipated come senior year. I had actually sec- come second semester of senior year. I I'd actually moved out, um, of, of my uh, mom's house and, moved in with a, a, a partner of mine that I had uh, met <laughs> my, my uh, first little boyfriend at the time. And that like put things into turmoil. So I basically from there just started like working out of high school. And fun fact, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I, I graduated high school, but I didn't graduate like other folks. Um, I had all my credits. I had all 49 of my credits, but I did, had to, but you have to complete required courses in order to, in order to graduate. And I had to complete English. And I hated English. <laughs> um, mm. And so I didn't get that one last semester credit um, to, uh, you know, graduate with how, you know, you're required to graduate, even though I had all my credits. There was no way for me to really kind of argue um, out of that. So I had to go to uh, summer school <laughs> that summer. Uh, 2017 is when I graduated. So I had to go to summer school that summer just to finish that one little credit and um, graduate. And I didn't even go to the ceremony for that summer graduation. <laughs> I so I've never I've never walked the stage before, but I just I just know I, I'm 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 set in that area. Um, Those ceremonies are so boring. I, oh, that's gosh. what I heard too as well. So I don't know if I'm missing out on anything, but I unless just, your parents make you, nobody would go. That's the yeah. only reason you go is because your parents make you and they want to take your picture. <laughs> and, but if you have parents that don't make you that are like, ah, I'm fine, then right. Oh god, Mom they're so horrible. <laughs> she just wanted to see the diploma and know that I was good. Um, but yeah, so out, out, out of high school, no college, just straight working. Um, and in my entire, so straight working for 17, 18, 19, 20, uh, four years, you know, four years of just customer, straight customer service jobs. I've had a lot of jobs. Um, I'm very picky on about how long I want to stay somewhere and like, depending if I like it or not. Um, I definitely don't like working for other people and making other people money. <laughs> so that's definitely been a premise of why I left a lot of jobs is because um, that or um, just not a lot of like care when it comes to like from, from the management. 
Um, the only job that's ever kept me for so long was 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 Quick Shop for a whole year because I had an amazing manager to the point where I eventually it makes a huge difference. It does to the point where I actually became her assistant manager, and so like that's like it, it really does take management to you know good management to really keep somebody. Um, but the reason why I left Quick Shop and that was my last job, so Quick Shop was the last job I ever had. Um, I left Quick Shop on April first of twenty twenty because of the overall corporates and in, in lack of. Um, uh, COVID, uh, COVID protection rollouts. Um, so like, it wasn't, it wasn't until like a month uh, after I left that they actually started like giving and enforcing mandate, uh, masks to their employees and then actually putting up those shields at at the counters. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it took a whole month after, you know, me leaving for them to actually, you know, do all that. Um, and so, yeah, so that's why I left. And then since then I've basically been unemployed. Um, but then that, that, that doesn't count all the work that, you know, that's been occurring during the summer, fall, and um, up till now. So 2020 was like a huge, like, shift for me. Um, to like, for somebody who had huge aspirations in their youth and adolescence, um, to that kind of being diminished with, like, the reality of what, of what society is, and that um, working, and that, in my mind, working was going to be the only way um, that I would find not, not success, but just uh, my, be able to be my basic needs. Um, and then that over time, just like kind of continue to show that like that wasn't a reality too as well. Cause you know, the reality of the systems, you know, you, you're, you're here to be exploited as much as possible, allow that exploitation. And I never liked allowing that. So <laughs> I'm still shook to this day that I've had a job that I, had, I worked at Quick Shop for a full year. But um, like I said, that management really does, does, does count. Um, I so mean, every, literally every um, management study that they ever do, it shows if you have good managers, you can retain people. It is cheaper for a company to retain people than to keep bringing in new people. Right. And yet for our like lowest paying jobs, it is totally acceptable culturally and professionally to have terrible, terrible, terrible lower end management. I just, I remember being at like 16 and working at Pizza Hut and mm-hmm. the management was so bad. They were so terrible and they allowed sexual harassment. They allowed underage drinking. They allowed underage smoking. The only way you could get a break is if you smoked. <laughs> I'm like, it's, it's terrible. It's terrible. Yeah. So yeah. I, I totally agree that it is all about exploiting people and there's no labor protections basically at all for people kind of at the bottom of the income earning bracket. Right. The actual laborers and the workers and the, and the servicers. Mm-hmm. That, that's what I've been throughout my entire work career. It's just a, 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 like literally it's been customer service um, at every single job. And, and, that, and that's what I, and that's what I kind of, and that's what I like to do though. Like I, I, I like to be of service of people. And so yeah. customer service has just always been like the kind of field that's called to me most. Um, but leading up to 2020. So like in, through, eight, through 2018 to 2020, I had kind of been brainstorming on brainstorming and, and building uh, note-wise or just um, idea-wise a nonprofit organization that, that I really wanted to um, do. Um, I, I named it North Omaha Revitalization Initiatives. 
and I had spent, you know, two years, you know, doing my research on like what, you know, and like, like off and on research, not like, not like consistent, like, like on the books, like I'm gonna get this, all this information in my head, but just studying about like how nonprofits work, um, the structuring, the requirements, like the, the legal or financial requirements, um, and then just expanding on like how to get certain programs or, you know, what I call initiatives um, going. So like, whether it be like, you know, community gardens, food programs, clothing programs, and when it went, went even as far as like what would creating and maintaining a community land trust look like, um, I, I had a lot of ideas. Wow. Yeah, what I, is I, a community uh, land trust? I don't even know what that means. A uh, community land trust is so it's say there's say on your block, there is a um, empty, empty pot of land and um, it's up for it's up for sale. Um, and you and your neighbor, you and your surrounding neighbors kind of want to do something with it. Um, so what you what you guys do are, is uh, band together, um, create an or, create an organization. It's usually a nonprofit, but however you want that to look, and to, together through this through this through this entity, um, that the neighborhood the block buys buys that land. That land is then um, in the hands of the neighborhood and um, in, in, in the residents, and so they can determine if somebody you know if a developer wants to come in and build something there, or if they want to invite a developer to come build something there, they can lease that land. To that developer to, to build something there and then that community that block is then making money through that lease to where then if there's another empty lot on that land on, on that block and they, and they want to buy that and you know in time or say or say that there isn't a there's a house an empty house on that block that they want to buy and once they save up money through that lease they can then that neighborhood can then buy that house and then you know fix it up if it needs to um, but then they can then they can sell the house, not the land, but the house to somebody for like a, for a long-term lease. And it's usually like a 99, um, 99 year lease. And so that's one way in which affordable housing can um, be, be achieved oh. to, 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 kind of, to kind of bypass market rates. Um, if you're, and, and I know there's more to it. So like, I'm not, I'm not the well-versed to like, to like fully explain it. Um, I'm still doing my research too as well, but like, that's like, the basis, I, I would say, of, of community land trust and the main goal too as well is to put land and housing um, of a neighborhood into the neighborhood's hands. And that's one thing that I've been, you know, been slowly or um, advocating for on a public, um, on a public presence for um, here in North Omaha. Oh, that would be so interesting. I'm even just imagining like, what if like a neighborhood somehow like was the landlord of the rental properties and so like profit from the rental properties went back into the people in the neighborhood and then like yes. you could work your way into owning that rental property if you lived there um or maybe you don't want to own property and you know like i just that's really interesting that's an and, and, interesting and, 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 concept and you're like kind of like right on the money too about like about the different things that can be done with the community land trust it's fluid in how like the community needs it to work um so you know if community wants to own a piece of land so that um, they can control what is developed on it, then then that, that can be their intention. Um, if, if they wanted to, if, you know, they want to see a park there, if they just want it to be an empty lot, you know, just for, for you know, for gatherings and stuff like that, or if they want to mm -hmm. see, um, you know, housing there or not. Um, it gives the residents, the neighborhood of the surrounding lot, the say in what gets developed there. And I, and I, and I feel like that is a necessary tool that North Omaha needs in order to, in order to stop gentrification in, in many areas. Yeah, I think my only worry about something like that, and I guess, you know, 
I'm just like imagining this concept, but like the first thing I kind of thought of aside from like my first thought was like, oh, I could see how this would be so cool. And it could create like a universal basic income of the neighborhood. Like what if every business had to pay rent and it went back to the residents of the neighborhood? Like I could see some really cool stuff there. But then I immediately thought like, oh, I can see how um, white people would then redline their neighborhoods. Yeah. <laughs> like that was my other, that was like my second thought. Um, Cause I have a mortgage background and I, you know, I think about redlining a lot, but oh, that's really interesting. I'm going to have to Google that later and just kind of see what that means and what that oh, looks yeah. like in other places. That, that, that sounds really cool. Worth, like, okay. That? So April, 2020, you're unemployed. Yes. And then you're hanging out. You're trying not to get COVID. Mm-hmm. You are well aware by this point that COVID is raging through immigrant communities and black communities and it is taking lives at higher rates than everyone else and yet no one in the government cares Mm -hmm. and the government is the only entity with enough authority and sway to do anything about it so we know that that's happening in april and then it's may and then george floyd is murdered Mm -hmm. and then we have the big protest in omaha Mm -hmm. at crossroads mall and you are activated, <laughs> right? right? Is that yeah. kind of like a simple timeline? It, it, it's yeah, and it, it, it's what it's what it feels like too. Just like it, I had left my job, you know, April first, and then two months, quite literally two months exactly, almost because the George Floyd protest happened May 29th and thirtieth. Um, two months, just kind of just chilling, you know, inside, stuck inside, basically, and kind of resting and recharging and like like watching the world around me too as well and then and then and then yeah George Floyd happens um and then I'm kind of just like you know really paying more attention to like you know the country and and the and um the world around the world around us and I think it was either the Wednesday or the Thursday before the event I think I think it might have been the day right before when, when I had seen that Facebook event, I was like, this is perfect. Like, I, I didn't think this was going to happen here. I knew that I wouldn't have any sway or power to, to start anything like, like that here. Um, and so I, I just had to go and check it out. And that day when I had when I had arrived there, it was a little bit like, I think like 15 minutes after it had started, there was already like a couple hundred people there. Like actually maybe like a few hundred people there. <laughs> and as soon, as soon as I'm like walking down, I'm, I'm just immediately pulling out my phone and I'm like, I'm just gonna live stream for my friends and family just to like for them to see what's going on here. And if any of them are down, as much as I'm as much as I'm down, then they'll come down here and um, join. And the live stream, you know, starts going good. But like, I'm just really in the moment, just kind of like just looking around, like really feeling it myself and not really into my phone at this point. And periodically, I'm like checking out my phone every five minutes now, and I'm seeing it goes from like 15 people to to 30 to 60. And I'm like, okay, so people are sharing it. And, and, and obviously people would be interested because I mean, if this is happening here, we've never seen this before. And then it hits about a hundred, 200. I'm like, oh, okay, this is interesting. I've never seen this before. <laughs> I mean, like, this is my first time ever really live streaming, like, ever live streaming. So like, I didn't know what to expect. I've never done it before, but I'm just starting to get this massive following. And then I'm seeing like 300, five, six. And I'm like, what is what's going on here? But I'm, like, I'm, I'm also reading the comments too. And it's like, I know I've had friends before this that that were well connected within like the community. So for them to see it and then share it 
then it gets that further, um, that spread and awareness and recognition. And so the next thing you know, I'm seeing a thousand, two thousand, three thousand, and it peaks um, and through time, of course, like, like through the course of like an hour and a half as, you know, shit's just going down and police are being funny and then confusing people and then people go on the streets because they're confused. Next thing you know, police are rolling out their, you know, their, their SWAT and their, and their riot geared, you know, riot geared up police um, and making demands that make no sense because we thought you blocked off the streets for us because, again, the police weren't communicating shit whatsoever. By the, by like the point on the mid, of the middle of everything, after I've, I remember after I've gone down to closer down to where the, where the old Applebee used to be, Applebee's used to be Charleston's and Olive Garden, all that going down Dodge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there, there, was a big, there was a big scene down there. Um, as I'm walking back, there's just like now at this point, like 9,000 people on the live, like at one time, like that number that, that pops up in, in the tight corner, 9,700 people was the peak of my uh, first live. I had, cause I had three cause my phone kept dying, but that was the peak of my first live. And I was just, again, I was just shook. I had never seen this in my life. So like, I, I can't really remember how I was feeling. I just know that I had, I was like, there's a lot of adrenaline going because of what course. What do you think people saw that drew so many people in? You know, what were they, what were they drawn to? I think people, folks were really were just drawn to for one the fact that this was a George Floyd protest in in, in a period of time in which there there were other George Floyd protests across the country, but for for folks specifically in Omaha seeing this and sharing this and the reason why I have such a huge base in Omaha is because the fact nobody had ever seen this before in Omaha, um, at, at least not in in recent history, not within the last like 20, 30 years in this size i mean I, I know we had we had protests here in uh 15 and 16 that were that were um fair, that were probably about maybe at least 100 folks but like never um in the thousands like there were on um friday and um i would say saturday too again there was at least a thousand so like that's definitely what, what drew people in because like they had they had never seen this before and i had never seen this before so i i, I was just as in awe and i was like i'm, I'm gonna continue to show folks like what we've never seen. So at this point, it was still just a protest, and it, but it was still peaceful at this point when you were, lots of people were tuning in and just curious about what was going on. And by yeah. peaceful, I mean on behalf of police. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At this point. Yeah, we we waited to describe peaceful because I mean, for one, it was a for me personally, it was a chaotic night, so um, yeah, it was hard for me to even like that night to today, it's hard for me to like recollect time when I'm looking, when I'm thinking back on, on the memories. But for sure, like I was reaching into the thousands once before police had blocked off the streets for, um, cause they were concerned, but they never said that to anybody. And then people started going into the streets because they thought that that was for them. Um, they thought that they thought police were blocking off the streets for them. Right. At that point, once people started getting into the streets then that's when the police in their minds felt justified to, to, to react the way they did and bring in force and further at, and then agitate people. So the height definitely didn't come in, didn't definitely hit when um, there was a lot of action going on. So, and, and that, that part too is definitely what um, I know for a fact brought people in was the fact that there was a lot of action and tension going on in, um, in the overall scene. Um, yeah. What happened to you that night? Were you arrested or? No, I, I was never arrested until July 25th, and I and I know we'll get to that. Um, yeah, I was never arrested. In, uh, I was never arrested that night, um, the night after, or during the curfews. I was only tear gassed about a dozen or more times in in, in those two days. 
Uh, only okay. Right, I, I don't even know. I don't even know because I'll, I'll <laughs> you know, you can't count tear gas canisters when they're flying at you. But I can definitely count yeah. as many times as, I, as I've coughed and you know been taken to a knee and trying to rub my eyes because I can't you know see or breathe. Um, and that's and just like, yeah, that was just traumatic. Like that's probably that the tear the tear gas the, the flashbangs and just the overall flashing of police lights and screaming is just something that. Unfortunately, a recurring um, theme um, throughout the summer, but um, mm -hmm. definitely still sticks with me. So then, so you st you went just to participate, and then you started streaming, and people were really interested in watching what was happening. Does that sound accurate? Yes, that yes, that that is exactly. Yeah. And, and and then of course we had multiple nights of protests, and mm -hmm. then of course James Skurlock was murdered. Mm -hmm. and more protests um and so then at this point is that when you decide like i just want to keep live streaming and showing what's happening like for posterity's sake or you know like because the news isn't showing this side or what you know what was your motivation yeah i was motivated to keep going after the first night because of what had happened to me and because of how i was hearing it being displayed onto the news and the narratives that i, I was seeing put onto the news and by the police, even though I know what I saw, what I heard and what I felt and what I overall, overall what I experienced. And that was just not the freaking truth. And that is the general theme of why I continued to live stream countless demonstrations throughout the summer and the fall was because the fact that I knew my footage created a different narrative than that the police and the media were spinning. And that, yeah, was, exactly. that was basically backing I mean, any demonstration from, from whether it was pro-Black or, or by another person, just giving them that video protection of, in the case that police come in and be the instigators like they usually are, so that that doesn't get spun up on them. Yeah. Did you feel safe when you were out taking all those videos all summer? No. Um, there wasn't a time that I, that I felt safe. Mainly, I, I never felt safe when I knew police were around. The only reason why I would feel safe was because I would... Hold up. Let me let me put some time to this. Friday happens. Saturday happens. And I definitely want to like speak on like the whole downtown aspect of that. Seeing the thousands of people there. First of all, it was a whole march going around downtown, like thousands of people just like like moving in unison. And then eventually it, it, it ended up in front of the courthouse for about a good 18, 20 minutes. Folks were kind of just sitting there chanting some kind of kumbayaing, but I mean, I understand the energy, you know, you're sticking it to the police and shit like that. Overall, it was still centered around George Floyd. Basically, downtown was a reaction to the police brutality the last two days on 72nd and Dodge. People were like, uh, no, screw you. Uh, you think you can keep gassing us out of, out of this area? We're going to meet you somewhere else. Um, was like the general like energy and vibe of the crowd and how I felt too. And so I distinctly remember, and this goes to again, being traumatized, and I looked back at it multiple times in my live stream from that night and just being across the street in front of the courthouse under the Woodman building. Um, there's a Hummer coming up, playing a, a local song, I think, about like, you know, fuck the cops. And then out of nowhere, it's just boom, 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 boom and just flashback, dozens of flashbangs and, and uh, uh, tear gas just going off. And like, next thing you see thousands of people in my scene. And the next thing you know, it's like no people, like people, like th imagine thousands of people in one area just scattering it in, in, all throughout. It was just a freaking war zone. And then it was after that fact that people started going around like the whole downtown um, doing what they were doing. I know that there were some broken windows and such like that and just like a little bit of damage here and there. Um, and then leading up to the hive and uh, um, Jake Garner 
um, murdering James Skurlock over his broken windows, even though people who did it weren't even there. The demonstrations afterwards were had a lot to do with, of course, James Skurlock. That was the main focus of the summer demonstrations on pro-Blacks end was pulling the police accountable for their brutality, their violence, and their inability to arrest Jake Gardner, and then demanding justice for James Skurlock so, and um, targeting uh, Don Klein. And also the Culture House and Joaquin Fox had a lot to do with um, the, the Don Klein specifically targeting him. But when it came to... What's up? I'm sorry. Right. I have a question. I wanted to get back up for a second. You talked about pro-Black. Can you talk about how you came to be associated with or an organizer with them? <laughs> oh, how I came to be? Um, yeah. I, I don't know your relationship to pro-Black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, for yeah. Our I, I definitely, yes. Thank, thank you for reminding me about that. Yeah. So the week right after the George Floyd protests and, and the death of James Skurlock, that's when I had wanted to do more than just live streaming. I wanted to actually organize. That's what really uh, jumpstarted me and wanted to organize. And so I had tried myself to muster up some friends and, and folks that were that wanted to get involved and that were like energized themselves due to the whole last weekend. Like there's a lot of uh, buzz going around that weekend and whatnot and folks wanted to do something. But like for that to happen, like so there needed to be like consistent energy and things need to keep going because people are here in America. Unfortunately, people tend to like lose interest once like a couple, a couple of days goes by. Um, and so I had attempted to start a group, but that just kind of like didn't really like work out in the sense of just like those folks being more busy or preoccupied or just unable to. And so, so the Monday afterwards, after the demonstrations, I had actually gone on to interview for a radio show at the Malcolm X Memorial Foundation. Um, they're now with uh, First Sky News. That's where I had met Morgan Freeman. She was also a guest on that show speaking about her experience and experience that weekend. And she was, cause also she was one of the organizers of those original demonstrations. And so- Fun fact, she, her and Angie Phillips, came here to talk to Stephanie April and I like Sunday after the Friday night crossroads protests. Yeah. So anyone can go back and listen to their like very first time that they, and they hadn't even talked about it yet. Their debrief was on the podcast. So it's a really, yeah. um, anybody interested should go back and listen to that because it was incredible to hear them. They're incredible women. It was amazing meeting Morgan then. And then like, she just like, she's been an amazing inspiration and and motivator for me since we've met. She was what really helped me like want to like organize. And so like, but then after that week of like failing to kind of like mobilize some friends. So she was, she was the, one of the founders of Pro Black along with a few others like Mark Hell Riley. There's a lot of names I can't name off the top of my head, but um, they had their first meeting in front of the courthouse. I believe it was June 14th. And it was kind of like an open invitation to kind of like get this thing going and like kind of like, you know, bring this idea to the people and figure out who wanted to be on board. For this first gathering that had about um, 40 people, I would say, maybe 35, let's just say 30, <laughs> 30, 35. And so from there, it was just kind of like, don't know how to go into detail, but it's just from there, like that, that's how I knew this was the group that I wanted to do this organizing uh, with. And so then come to the next meeting, we're meeting at Memorial Park now, and that, that was our main meeting place for a while, was Memorial Park on Sundays. And next thing you know, I'm Markel, this dude named Anthony, and a few others were kind of leading the, the conversations and, and such. But then came people kind of like, like me and Bear, and just, just giving more input into conversations and such. And just through the course of another couple of weeks, um, I just 
Um, I, I brought my laptop a lot to, to every meeting. So um, I was eventually asked if I, could, if I could help take notes. And I was like, yeah, I'm down to do that. And then our first ever things that we did were the mayor sit-ins. There were the mayor, were the two mayor sit-ins that we did in, uh, what was it? It was in, in June. The first one was in June and the second one was in July. And then after that was the Bloody Sunday March in which we uh, marched from the courthouse to OPD headquarters with the main messaging being about how tear gas has had drastic effects on the feminine reproductive systems, whether it comes to irregular periods, heavy periods, or no periods for um, a long amount of time. The effects were drastic on a lot of protesters, a lot of female protesters who were at the demonstrations. My daughter um, experienced that after she attended a couple of protests in Seattle. And I mean, I'm not even sure things have normalized yet. And that was months ago. And that's what I've heard too, is that that women are still having like these terrible effects on the reproductive system months after being exposed to tear gas. Mm -hmm. And we did that demonstration uh, demanding, you know, the end to the use of tear gas. And I believe with the recent lawsuit, ACLU versus, you know, the city, there is some language change or some policy change on how um, non-lethal, quote-unquote, dispersal methods can be used. I had to look more into that. I wasn't necessarily fully a part of that lawsuit. Um, But yeah, so basically pro-Black began June 14th in that first meeting, and I had gotten involved because it was what I wanted to do, and I had no, I, I had no problem joining, you know, something that somebody else had already started. That was never an issue to me. I don't need to be the one to start something in order for it to be like, be something I want to do. Yeah, it, it, was just, it was just really like an organic growth of being involved with them. Um, I just kept showing up and I kept being engaged because that's what I wanted to do. And all of us who, you know, kept showing up and being engaged ended up just being, you know, the main folks, you know, the main organizers of pro-Black. And of course it is the progressive Black-led Allied Coalition. So naturally it was me, Markel, and Bear, who were the main lead organizers of pro-Black, with every now and then, we had other um, uh, Black members who, 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 who we gave voice to when it came to organizing. I love that. So you're like, I mean, it's just, this is classic, this is classic organizing. It is 101. People are at their wit's end. They come together. You start having meetings. You start dialoguing. And you're like, all right, well, let's figure out what to do. And you just go do it. And then right. you're like, well, how'd it go? Well, I don't know. Maybe we could do this better, do this right. different. I kind of have a different idea. And then you do that and you just keep, you just keep going. So this is all going on. And then there's the kettlebell incident mm-hmm. in Omaha on the bridge where police trap um, like 30 something people no. onto a bridge. They, they trapped 125 of us. Oh, crap. I was like, in my mind, I was like, I think it was over 100. I'm like, no, that's hyperbole. I think I'm imagining that. No, you're right. Okay. Okay. So my first thought was actually right. Okay. So over 100 people trapped on a bridge yeah. on a hot summer night in Omaha. It's over 90 degrees. It's hot concrete. It's over an interstate. So there's yeah. like car fumes everywhere. And everyone's closed tear gas as they were walking back to their cars to go home because the protests were over for the night. Correct. Right? Yeah. Like we were, we were quite literally like, like two blocks away. Like we could see our cars. Like we were two blocks away from our starting point mm-hmm. at uh, like Turner, you know, Farnham and Turner Boulevard. And they literally stopped us two blocks from, from our cars. And like, we were trying to tell them, like, we're almost home. Like, let us go the fuck home. <laughs> and yeah. And then police like trap people there for hours, covered in yeah. tear gas, sweating on themselves with their hands behind their backs, handcuffed, sent everybody to COVID jail. 
where there had been active COVID cases. Mm-hmm. And then some people didn't get out till eight, nine in the morning the next day. Oh, not and even. You were way worse. There. Way worse. Way worse than just the next day. We weren't booked into the systems until the next morning because their systems on the weekends apparently go down conveniently for their pleasure of keeping us in there longer. And so like that played into the whole like, you know, the bails were already sent and whatnot, but like their systems, you know, quote unquote, weren't working and such. So they weren't, especially their bail system wasn't working or registering shit. Mm-hmm. And it took them a while to actually get us into the system because their other systems weren't working. Like it, it was just like, and of course, being in there and subjected to them, it, it sounds, you know, so convenient that your systems aren't working. Uh, a lot of a lot of us, I don't think the first people really got out until, so that was Saturday. A lot of people didn't get out until like, you know, the afternoon of Sunday. I did not get out until 1 a.m. of Monday. I was in, I was detained. I was in detained for 27 hours. Most folks were detained for 24 hours in, in the holding cells with 20, 30, 40 plus people in the men's and the women's cell combined, you know, not combined, but like separately, like 40 in each, if not more in the women's, like there was probably like 50, 60 in the, in the women's holding cell, cells, like holding cells that are, that are meant to only hold like 15 people at a time, if even that. And during COVID, they gave us masks, but they gave us these orange loose jail masks that didn't do anything because there's just so like loose, like it was, mm-hmm. that alone too was traumatizing, being packed like sardines and then basically being treated like animals, like you didn't, like you weren't human. You know, um, we they would every now and then cycle us to like the little, the little uh, social area or like where, where they had the chairs, the little holding chair area where, they, where you could sit down and watch the TVs or whatever while you're waiting and, to be processed. And so for all that, <clears throat> what did you get charged with? Um, the main charges that everybody got, unless you were actively resisting, were um, obstruction of justice and failure to disperse. Obstruction of, of a roadway, my bad, <laughs> and failure to disperse. Um, okay, so, so failure to disperse because you were literally trapped on a bridge. Well, that, and no, you were walking that, in the street, so that's like obstructing the roadway or whatever, yeah, right? The, the, the failure was the failure to disperse was because during during the marching that we were doing, they had attempted apparently multiple times. They said they said to um, tell us that um, our assembly was unlawful and that we needed to get out of the streets or whatever. But like they tried doing so from like the like coming from like the side streets instead of like being in front of us and telling us that. Mm-hmm. So not everybody heard it, and those who did were like, okay, and um, so like, and rightfully so. Like streets are for people too. Do you, do you think those are like violent charges? No, no, those are completely misdemeanor, except for like the, the handful of folks that might be got like resisting arrest or obstructing a peace officer because they asked a question. Like literally folks were given um, obstructing a peace officer just for asking a question, like, like, why are you arresting me? Or like some stuff like that, you know, simple, just like questions, which which just continues to go, you know, the, goes to show like the rampant amount, amount of abuse police have with their authority. Like, oh, you're going you're gonna to question me? Cool, you're just going to get another charge. And no one's going to question it because, you know, there's a hundred of you here and you're all violent protesters, but anyway. Right. So nobody, nobody was charged with anything violent. Nobody was charged with the destruction of any property, which by the way, is not a violent crime. (laughs) It is, it is a property crime, right? Like that's not a violent crime. It's a financial crime at worst. Um, It's an irritating crime at worst. It's annoying at worst. Right. Um, so no violent crime. And then you got put in jail for days yeah, for yeah, yeah. a nonviolent crime in a pandemic 
in a place that had active COVID cases. And that's, that's how the Omaha police chose to respond. Yeah. And then you got caught up in a whole, the ACLU came in, which the ACLU really had not been active all summer long. I hadn't really been hearing from them until this happened. They were kind of, I didn't see like their witnesses out there. I didn't see their, they weren't passing out cards, like know your rights. I don't, were you guys seeing anything from the ACLU prior to this? Like, did they come to pro-black meetings? Like, um, not that I know of personally. I, I only really started seeing the ACLU after this, after 725, which is what we all call it. We just call it 725. Because afterwards came the, I think it was like, like the Know Your Rights event that Culture yeah. House hosted, um, in which the ACLU was there to like provide uh, like, you know, legal advice and have, have folks, you know, get help through like the Freedom Fund, um, something like that in which we all did get our lawyers and such like that. But then- Yeah, it sounds like they really kicked in after that. (laughs) I just thought it was surprising because that is, they have a whole wing of infrastructure that is supposed to be like preemptively helping people before they interact with police. And (laughs) I just didn't, I'm like personally frustrated that I didn't see them before that. And I know they used to have a bail fund and that they don't have it anymore. They had it like one year maybe and it's gone. And so they weren't, it was frustrating to think that a moneyed infrastructure based around civil rights and freedom wasn't there on day one or at least day two. Um, so I just found that very frustrating. That's my own personal like rant. But uh, so but then they did come in and they started doing know your rights, got people lawyers. And, and like what happened after that? So I never had to go to court because there came a time where the what was it, the city attorney or somebody along with those powers dropped a lot of the charges for people for about like um, 75 people, but like maybe like 30, I would, yeah, I would say 30 just to round it out, 30 people were still left with charges. So I was one of the individuals that charges were dropped and the basis for char- dropping charges, they say, was because of lack of evidence. And so like, which I think is really bullshit. Um, sorry, I don't know what language is on the show, but which I think is really bullshit. <laughs> If you want to say fuck Pete Ricketts, like, yeah, it's totally fine. It's fine. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, no, that that was bullshit saying that they didn't have any evidence against me because I'm literally recording live streams and I'm in the street recording these live streams. So what do you mean? You don't have evidence (laughs) of me. I created the evidence against myself. I'm not, I'm like, I'm being completely honest here. Like, and that makes no sense. Well, my boyfriend at the time, this was only on the sidewalk the entire time of the protests. And I even quite literally got like, I, I know I went over to talk to him and I'm pretty sure I got him on, on video. I haven't you know looked through it like that intently though. But like, there's evidence there that he was on the sidewalk. Yeah, his charges stuck until just recently when Bear and the, uh, Bear, the ACLU and, you know, uh, OPD, you know, you know, struck that agreement with the lawsuit to, you know, drop, drop everybody's charges. His charge stuck until then. And so like, that was just like, that makes no sense. You're continuing to traumatize and stress somebody out who was not on the street, who did not break the law whatsoever that night, to be honest. He did not occupy our lower roadway and he didn't need to disperse because he wasn't occupying a roadway. So like, they just fucked up there. And like, so like that, that's just one, one way. And like, I don't think they were intentional at all with their dropping of charges. They just wanted to drop a certain amount of charges and keep them stuck towards a certain amount of people. They didn't care who it was. The city and the police wanted somebody to to pay for trying to challenge their power. That's what it was. And we know that their power is too big. It was too big. It is too big. We know for sure yes. they are 
And we just saw a bunch of stuff came out in the media recently that the police were definitely surveilling all of the Black activists in Omaha last summer. Right. Also, at the same time they were doing that, for context, they were making statements that even though they welcomed the Proud Boys at their police rally, they'd never heard of the Proud Boys. So they were not surveilling the white supremacy movement, who just a few months later took on the Capitol building and attempted an insurrection, right? So like we know there were actually dangerous people in Omaha and we know people from Nebraska were in DC that for right. that insurrection, but we know they were also following black activists who didn't kill anybody, who didn't do anything violent. Um, some property was destroyed, eh, whatever. Um, that's the worst thing that happened on behalf of protesters, right? Meanwhile, we actually lost James Scurlock. Kenneth Jones was killed by police for not getting out of the car within less than a minute. Um, And we know they were surveilling all the black activists in Omaha and you were one of them. Mm -hmm. And, 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 oh, go ahead. No, what were we asking? Oh, I was gonna say, did you get a sense of that last summer? Like, was this new information for you? Um, no, 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 no. So it was not new information for me. So when it came to the Freedom of Information Act request that the ACLU had put in for um, us activists, including me, there were a lot of internal, like, you know, OPD communications, because that, that, that's like, that's, that's what the, you know, Freedom of Information Act, you kind of like, look like, you know, goes after is like the, the information that they can get um, their hands on that can be proven, proven communication. And so a lot of individuals were, were spoken about in those internal communications, but there were a few of us that weren't, but those of us that weren't were still, and even those that weren't a part of that request, of course, were still targeted when it came to like seeing, for me, for instance, speaking on my half, um, seeing increased police presence in my neighborhood and on my block. And quite literally, one of my roommates telling me um, that during the day, sometimes when he's, um, you know, sitting in maybe he's coming, he just, he just comes home, you know, getting a ride home and he's sitting in the car with his friends about to come out, you know, or just sitting at home, looking outside, there are cop cars that'll come by down our street really slow and make it, make it a point to like, look direct, like look at our house. Or if he happens to be outside, the police asked him or, or whoever he's with, are you guys doing okay? Like some, just like on some weird shit. <laughs> and then on top of that, also just like me having interactions with police during demonstrations and whatnot, especially Liberation Squares, especially during the days when I would be on the megaphone and not just on my phone, they loved harassing us after demonstrations. They loved, um, you know, waiting for, you know, certain folks to leave in their cars and then they'd uh, follow them a little bit, a uh, few blocks further or maybe maybe even outside of downtown and then pull them over. And then that person and that person or individual have to like call the rest of us who are still waiting downtown, like, hey, I got pulled over. So we all have to rush to them to like, to make sure that they're okay. But the thing is, police weren't expecting that. They weren't expecting us to show out for our fellow activists whenever they would get pulled over a few blocks away or outside of downtown, but we move quick. Like as soon as we learn someone is, is pulled over, we're like, no, you're not You're not gonna get somebody. We even had a time where, where our, our Lincoln activists who would come up for our liberation squares every weekend were on their way home. And they got stopped off of uh, St. Mary's Avenue up here trying to hit the interstate. And next thing you know, we're, we're hopping in like two cars <laughs> two cars deep going to like pull up and check on them so it's a minivan full of one adult four adolescents four teenagers four teenage activists 
and there's about five cop cars, five cop cars there with in, in like double the amount of cops there at that situation. And when we pull up, that brings about like uh, 10 to 15 of us there. So that, that kind of balances it out. I know, actually, no, it doesn't balance it out at all. It gives us, it gave, it gave us the number advantage, but also we all started going live. I went live, people, my, my friends went live or fellow activists went live and we made sure that the police were being watched and that they handled the situation correctly. And then, um, yeah, and just making, and just like talking to the folks in the car um, while keeping our distance, you know, cause as police, you know, want us to, they were always watching us. Um, that, that's just the thing. Like they knew when to pull us, they knew when we were leaving to pull us over as to how I knew they knew, I don't know. To this day, I question how they knew the Lincoln activists were leaving and where to catch them at. I just, it just baffles me. One thing that kind of like makes me not question it because they probably have eyes and ears everywhere was the fact that, so during the Kenneth Jones protests outside the police headquarters, police used their drones to keep an eye on us. So that lasted for four days, those demonstrations. But come early December, I'm coming home um, not from an administration, just coming home from, I think it's just a, a nice evening of door dashing, <laughs> as I do. And I'm driving down my neighborhood. It's, it's, it's all flat, so it's kind of it's easy to see things. And as I'm driving to my block, I see, so my house kind of sits towards the corner. And I, I, I see something, you know, in the air above my house. I see, I see it through some trees, but I, I see like a green light, green and white light, and they're just sitting there. And as I'm pulling up, I'm like, what is this? And it's like right above my house. And I had never seen it before. So I knew it wasn't, you know, pole. I knew it wasn't any, any, any kind of tower. And so I got I, I my phone and I don't have the best footage of it, but you know, I saw it clear and day with my eyes. It was a drone. And it was like, not so like I'm sitting where I'm sitting right above, right under where, where it was. Um, it was no more than probably like 20, 30 feet above my house. And it, it did not decide to fly away until I pulled up and turned the corner to my block. And then it like, so I'm going south from the north and turning onto my block. And then it just books it back north um, after I turn around. So like, I try to follow it. I try to go around the block and follow it, but it's just booking it north and I eventually lose sight of it. And so I'm like, what, what is this? And I knew it was a police drone because I, we literally got an upfront view of them, both of them that night, all night during the Kenneth Jones protests. Like yeah. I, I knew the green light, I knew the white light, and I knew the positioning in, in which they were on the drones. And, and just so I'm a hundred percent clear, you're saying you are certain it was not an alien because you <laughs> saw it at a protest earlier in the day. <laughs> <laughs> I can't see it was not an alien. I wish uh-huh. that'd be a little less scary, obviously. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, the Omaha Police Department. I used to live in Omaha, and I found it. You know, you're talking about people getting pulled over. And when I moved to Lincoln, I was shocked because I never see speed traps. Like, ever. Mm -hmm. And in Omaha, they're everywhere, all the time, constantly. In weird spots. In weird spots. Really weird spots. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah. I drove past one going down 33rd Street towards the Gifford Park area um, here in Omaha. I was actually trying to go to a friend's house, which like, so I was going down 30th and his house was literally going to be this next turn. Well, there's a cop sitting like right, right before that turn, lights on and everything. And it's like midnight. So like, I understand why he's probably doing it. I mean, actually, no, I don't understand anything they do. And I'm going to the speed limit. I'm doing perfectly fine. And as I, as I turn onto my friend's street, the cop pulls up, pulls out of where he of his spot to follow me. 
And so like, okay, well, I definitely don't want to stop at my friend's house now because I don't want to like, I don't want to seem suspicious, you know, quote unquote, that, I, that I'm stopping here as soon as he pulls out. Because like, in my mind, to them, that can be suspicious and they can do whatever, whatever they want, or they can say it's suspicious. So I, I quite literally had to, had to drive all the way to the 30th and just act like I was going to a gas station instead, just wait and see if they would pull me over or not. It's crazy. And like, of course, the area that I'm talking about is, is like close to North Omaha, or if not, is like considered like near, near North Omaha. So it's just, yeah, I never feel safe when I see a cop. <laughs> That's just fact, especially now after this, after the summer. Right. So how do you move forward? Like, how do you, like, I know, you know, you're working, you were going to run for office. You're not going to run for office anymore. You've picked a candidate in the municipal race uh, for city council, yes. uh, trying to replace the person who currently represents North Omaha, Ben Gray. You've picked somebody, maybe they'll win, maybe they won't win. What's the name of the person who you want to win? Uh, Jonathan Lathan. So I, I will say that, okay. um, so I was running for city council. Um, I had actually been entertaining the idea throughout the summertime. Um, like I said, you know, political office has been something that um, I've, I've aspired for since, you know, I was, I was, you know, I was 10. Um, but of course, you know, the views change and mature a little bit as, as you age, you know, you come a little bit more realistic. <laughs> um, and so I knew if I ever wanted to like run for office or start somewhere, it would be local, locally. And it, the most important offices are locally. So I knew there were a lot of issues before all this, of course. And of course, in my own life too, I experienced it. But experiencing everything throughout the summer and being even more hyper-focused on local issues, all the faults and failures and, and issues of, of Omaha and um, the intentional neglect and disenfranchisement of North Omaha um, just continued to just like really like shine um, in my face. Um, and I just couldn't continue to like really sit and just say and talk about these things. I wanted to do more and, and act. Um, and of course, action can be achieved in many ways. Uh, that's one thing that I've continued to learn and, and be reminded throughout this summer and during the campaign. It took me a while to announce, but I announced in December and I uh, campaigned for a few months, but uh, February 8th, I publicly um, announced my campaign suspension. I want to do the work, I want to act, but there are other ways that I can do so instead of just running for office. I can do a lot of the groundwork um, and grassroots work, community work that needs to be done alongside with stuff that needs to be done on the political scale. I know that uh, politically you can, uh, one can have an effect and, and advocate and sway for things to make the groundwork and the community work easier. Um, and that's what I want to do, but I find that I have more, more passion for doing the actual groundwork, the, the, nitty, the nitty gritty work in the, in the organizing. Um, and yeah, because so there's two sides, right? Like yeah. there's the policy makers but policymakers can only get so far and especially just one policymaker, right? They can't get anywhere without building, being able to play politics and like building their own like coalitions at that level. Yeah. And then the other side of change is culture change mm -hmm. exactly. and exposing what's true and educating everyone and convincing people culturally to see things in a new way. Right. You can't do one without the other. They all, they go together because if you've changed everybody's minds, you should be able to win more elections. Right, exactly. It keeps, you know, keep circling. <laughs> so you're right. Like they're both, you can't have one without the other. One is not more important for sure, for sure. What do you think, what does the future look like for you? What are you hoping that by this time next year, what do you hope that will be different? 
boy, time. Um, I'm not the best at uh, looking, especially with lately. I know we were talking about earlier, like, you know, with everything, you know, happening and compounding together, it's kind of hard to like focus and, 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 and see things. So seeing things from a year from now, and I should probably get better at it and focus more on it, but like, it's still not fully set in stone because I'm not, the certainty of what will happen or especially this election isn't really known. Mm-hmm. So like, cause like, so like, cause this election means honestly everything about what the future looks like. And if we change absolutely nothing about our city government in this election, then the next year from now is going to look completely different compared to if we, you know, completely flush out the city council and, and the mayor, those outcomes look different uh, a year from now. So I can say for the next two months, my main focus is to make sure that Jonathan Lathan wins District 2. Um, I am his constituency director, so um, I, and I recently just got hired on as that. So my goal is to, um, you know, use my platform and, and my base and just my connections and just my skills in, in that I've used to, like, acquire all those to help him, um, you know, with that ground game here in North Omaha and connecting with people. I'm essentially kind of in charge of, like, who he sees, who, who he talks to and, like, um, my thing is I, I want to talk to the people. So yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, make sure he talks to everybody and make sure that he gets a pr- perspective of everybody in the community. My suffering and my experience and, and my adversities in this community may be similar to somebody, but it's completely different depending on the circumstances that somebody else lives in. Um, um, and so I, I want to like make sure he's exposed to the variety of individuals within our community. Yeah, for sure. What, um, yeah. what about mayor? Who are you rooting for for mayor? Do you um, have someone that you love? I do have someone that I love. I will say it's a little biased, but maybe it's not. But I love and fully support uh, Dwan Hayes for mayor. He is also my roommate, but it's also the director of um, of Noise, Noise Omaha. I'm sure you've definitely mm-hmm. heard of that. Oh, um, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> especially with, you know, the report and everything else. So he's, he's a really good friend of mine. He's He's been my roommate for two years now. Um, and we've been friends for about three, three and a half years now. And I've just, I've been able to watch him grow. Um, watch I've been able to watch Noise grow and just be able to like fully experience him as a person on all levels. And he's extremely caring, genuine, down to earth, and really takes time to address and find solutions to issues um, that, that we have in our city, especially um, when it comes to focusing on on regenerative issues and making sure that our city is sustainable. Because as of right now, we see development that's just like, you know, throwing money at development just because it's development, you know, not not because it's good, not because it's going to be sustainable, not because it's going to benefit people, but because it's going to give this one person or group a bunch of money in the long run. And they get to use TIF and not pay the city back and the city gets absolutely nothing from it. Nobody benefits but, but the developers. That's definitely one thing that like, I love that he focuses on. And I love his ideas when it comes to like more intentional and sustainable development um, and more ecologically sustainable development. Um, I think that's what Omaha needs. And I feel like that's what, that's what Omaha can do successfully because we are, we are at a point in which we're gonna be developing a lot. We're gonna be continuing to grow as a city, but we need to do so in a way that is responsible and beneficial to the people that are here and the environment that we live upon. And one thing that I also love that he points out first among other candidates is Omaha's history of violence and that how it was built on violence. And quite literally its name is violence because it comes from a tribe that once lived here and no longer does. And we do absolutely nothing to give it accreditation or value it for the name that we have. Um, That's nor, a really good point. Nor, about nor do we own up to the name. People who flow against the current. What we don't necessarily, or we don't see ourselves necessarily doing that. We see ourselves following, following in line with whatever is given to us. At least, at least 
our city government is. You know, you know, every development that's just put in front of city council, rubber stamped. Mayor, rubber stamped. Doesn't matter. It's just going with the flow. When we should be doing the opposite and being more, being more daring. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But um, I definitely also like Jasmine. Uh, I'll put that out there. <laughs> oh, you said Jasmine Harris. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I love her. I love her. Um, she just has like this long tail nonprofit advocacy. I just love seeing women in power. Oh, yeah. Like, so yeah. I just love her. Uh, April, do you have any questions for Peyton? Yeah. As the resident librarian, we like to ask um, our guests, <laughs> have you read anything um, that you might recommend? I am currently reading something. Um, I'm reading bits and pieces of it going throughout it, but I intend to read it all. Um, I'm reading, I'm gonna show you guys, I know that everyone can see. <laughs> I'm reading Powernomics, uh, the National Plan to Empower Black America, simply because I want to see the black community thrive more. And I believe that through collective economics and just overall like um, focusing on the idea and concepts of collectivism versus individualism is the way forward for the black community and in, in building our wealth, whether and power politically, economically, and socially. That's a very like basic way to say it, but that's what's drawn me to this book. I love it from what I've read so far on it. And I definitely recommend it to, to anybody to read, honestly, everybody. Um, you don't have to be black just to read it. I've had um, yeah. a white friend of mine, she started reading bits and pieces of it and started actually like listening to excerpts from um, Dr. Claude Anderson, who's the author of the book. And she said it's actually really opened up her mind to kind of um, the tactics and, and strategies that have been used to undermine and diminish black power here in America. And she said it's been extremely helpful and like thanked me for uh, showing her about it. And so it's definitely a beneficial read for anybody. Dr. Claude Anderson is an inspiring and um, intellectual figure that I would recommend anybody just look into. Excellent. We will add it to our bookshop list for listeners. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, okay, final question. You have been through the shit for, it's not even been 12 months, by the way. Like, yeah. <laughs> we're not even to April when you left your job last right. year. Like, we are not even yet in March. We're at the end of the last day of February is when we are recording this in 2021. So in less than 12 months, you have become a totally different person maybe in some ways yeah, you've lived a whole lifetime of experiences <laughs> it's bananas like your story is bananas right, right. um so we didn't even start talking about anything past i don't know august right like we only we just spent the last hour and a half talking about three months right primarily yeah uh, that's like, how much for the rest <laughs> yeah that's how much has happened so there are a lot of people who now that we're coming into spring they're going to have those same kind of spring feelings where they're going to want to get involved and right. maybe they couldn't get involved last year because um of the pandemic or maybe they were still just trying to wrap their brains around it but maybe they've been reading and maybe they've been um watching and learning and now now they're ready they're ready to do something, to do anything. Mm -hmm. So for people that are new to the work, and you can define what you think that means, the work. Yeah. People that are new to the work, what would you say to them? What's your advice? Yeah. So when I think of the work, I think of really 
anything that one themselves sees as how they can benefit the movement and progress towards racial, social, and economic justice and overall class justice too on, on, at the end of the day, if we want to go that far, everybody can contribute to the work in their own ways. Everybody's work looks differently. Mine looks differently than, than, than Bear's. Bears and I, you know, look differently than, than, you know, Joaquin um, or fellow organizer, you know, Markel. But what we bring to the table, um, regardless, is, is crucial. What everybody brings to the table is, is crucial. What I would want to say is for those who want to bring their skills and their strengths to the table, try to reflect and hone in on, on what your skills are, what you're really good at. So for, for me specifically, so I spent, you know, my four years, you know, after high school working customer service because I'm, I was really good with connecting with people and, and, and um, I'm having conversations with folks and just like understanding where they come from to help them better get where they want to be. Overall, I just like connecting and socializing. So I, I try to use that to, to my strength. Once someone has, has a general, general idea what their strengths are, if you know that there are, if you have seen individuals within, within your community who are a part of the work that you want to be a part, um, like say, say, say for example, in Omaha, you, you, you know of me, you know of Bear, you, you know of Joaquin, you know of you know, Culture House, maybe you want to be more journalist, so you know of Noise. Um, definitely, and, and, I, and it's hard for me to do this. So like for, to tell someone to do this, like, like feels kind of like imposterish, but definitely reach out to them because, you know, more times than most, like, Every individual entity that I've named has been always welcomes people with, with open arms and is always and is always willing to help someone find what their niche is and well definitely always needs help. And we definitely understand where we lack and what we need. And most people that approach us bring in a fresh perspective that we never would have thought about. And so definitely reach out to somebody and just like talk to them, maybe ask them, you know, what do they need or um, how can I bring this strength or skill to help this movement that I, or help this part of work that um, I want to be a part of, or just in general, how, how can I be involved? I do know that there are a lot of, like you said, it's the springtime, so a lot of people are getting active. I do know that there's going to be more programs, more or more, more another another organization, you know, coming into fruition um, within the next few months, and so there's definitely going to be a lot of opportunities for people to join the work and be active. And so I definitely just want to like really express, like just reach out and especially like, and most definitely like keep your ears to the ground and your, and your eyes open for those opportunities because we're definitely, um, it's definitely going to be out there, but it just got to, yeah, just got to pay attention. <laughs> that is, I think that's really good advice. Just knowing who you are, start there. Yes. <laughs> who are you? <laughs> just like get in your skin and figure yourself out and then, um, connect to your community, find people, get, interact, jump in. Yes, because we all have a skill, we all have a talent, we all have perspectives that when we come together, we're able to solve the most complex solutions together than we are individually. Um, and, and that's, a, that's a, a principle of the concept uh, that I've been uh, looking at uh, called collective leadership. Like, you know, more heads are better than, than one. Just, yeah, just, just mainly around the aspect of like individualistic and traditional leadership models that, that we've seen, you know, carried out for decades have been unable to solve simple solutions of the past and they can no longer solve the complex solutions that we have now because those simple solutions of the past could not be solved or were just, you know, simple, simple put a bandaid, bandaid over for somebody else to solve. So now we have to really like work together 
um, and, and bring our unique perspectives to the collective so that we can, um, I mean, so, so we can just stir this pot together and come up with a good solution. <laughs> well, and I know you live your life that way because every story you've told tonight, you have been including the names of, well, then they did this and then I did this part of it and then they did that part of it. Yeah. Every story you have told that way. So I know that's how you live your life. And I think that is revolutionary. And I think that's how we're going to meet the justice that we want to see in the future. Oh, certainly. Well, thank you for coming on tonight. Yes, thank you for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Peyton. That's fantastic. Great. Thank you. You've been listening to Seeing Red Nebraska, Politics from the Left. Seeing Red is a group blog edited by citizen volunteers and entirely devoted to Nebraska politics. You can support us on Patreon with a $5, $10, or $20 a month donation. Be sure to check us out at seeingrednebraska.com and on Facebook and Instagram. You can also follow us on Twitter at seeingredne or contact us via email at seeingredne at protonmail.com. 